Thank you for the reading of the word. And as I think about our time here today, I want to thank some people who I don't know are here or not. As I think about how we came to this place, I think it's important to name people who were significant in this process. Uh, as I think about uh, here in this neighborhood, um, being here with people in this neighborhood, hearing the stories of people, I want to thank, oh boy, this is going to be fun. I would like to thank, uh, okay, I ain't worried about that. We're going to be all right. I would like to thank um, Ronnie and Virginia Drake, who have been faithful stewards in this community and helped with some, with some history lessons for me to understand this neighborhood. I think it's important uh, to do ministry in a neighborhood where you know it's history. Uh, we don't just get here. We don't just wake up one day and the neighborhood looks the way it does. There's a history. I want to thank Joanne Bowman, uh, who is no longer with us. She's uh, passed away, who was faithful for over 40 years as our neighborhood, the Center City Neighborhood Association president. And her dream one day was to have a park in this neighborhood again. And so she has passed away and hasn't seen it, but her legacy and her hope lives on. I want to thank uh, Miss Norma Stone, who was very faithful in her many years of living in this neighborhood. Miss Stone uh, is now sick. Uh, she's not doing very well. She's in a nursing home in Fort Wayne. Uh, but I want to say uh, thank God for Miss Norma Stone, who was an advocate in her neighborhood, uh, who, who sought to make her neighborhood a better place for over 40 years, uh, who burned barrels in the neighborhood, uh, up with hope, down with dope. Some of you all might remember that in the early 90s and in the 80s. Uh, Miss Norma Stone was one of those people burning the barrels and knocking on the doors of homes where drugs were being sold. And so I want to thank uh, Miss Norma Stone. I also want to thank Shane Bill. This whole project was taking place, Hope House was in the process of thinking about building something on their property. And Shane Bill contacted me. And he said, Andrew, this is what we're thinking about doing. What do you think about it? And I said, well, Shane, this property that we have on our property is a little bit bigger. And I have been listening to the people in this neighborhood for a very long time. And one of the things that people want to see is a park restored in this neighborhood. And we had hoped from the beginning of this church, when we bought this building and this property for $10, we had hoped to be able to leverage this in a way that benefits our neighborhood. I remember about 2008, 2009, Julius Mays, who grew up in this neighborhood, making a Facebook post and saying, we need a basketball court in our neighborhood. Now, he's no longer here. He's moved on, moved down south. But I don't forget these things. I think that listening to the voices who were here before you and who have been here long before I ever thought about this are important to listen to. So I would like to thank these people on top of all the organizations and the people that we have worked with in this process, RMA, College Church, Hope House, and all of the people who have come together to make this possible. I think this is important, this message of Isaiah 61 is important for the work that we are here doing today. As uh, the kids, as the young people, the youth just read Isaiah 61. A few chapters before this, we had Isaiah 58, 57, and 58, where there are some religious leaders who are being rebuked. They're being re rebuked because uh, they have gone the way of foreign nations 
They have served other idols and they have participated in injustice uh, for their own people. They have oppressed people and, and the poor and they have been part of something that I think it's important for us to look at today. Isaiah 59, they're confronted by God and there's a confession by Israel for their wickedness. They confess their sin. In there, they say justice is far from us. Isaiah chapter 60, Zion is glorified, and then we transition into Isaiah 61, which describes a new creation that is filled with joy and abundance. But for God to set everything right, he must first reverse everything that's wrong. You know, this whole idea of uh, Isaiah 61 is built upon this idea of jubilee. In uh, Leviticus chapter 25, uh, there was something instituted into the Jewish law. It's called jubilee. Now, what's interesting is there's nothing in history or records that showed that this ever happened. <laughs> However, but Isaiah 61 points us to the suffering servant who made it all happen. But Jubilee is unique. It would happen every 50th year, right? Now, check this out. Every 50th year, this is supposed to happen. Now, this hasn't happened, but this is supposed to happen. There's a, to be a release of debts. There is to be a release of servants or slaves. There is a return of property to the original owner. There's dedication to Sabbath and rest and not working because God's people were never supposed to be identified by their work, but always by their rest, because God had already done it all before man and woman were created. And then what is this for? It's to keep any one group of people from conquering and having too much land, too many resources, too much, because the reality is, is this stuff sets in on our hearts, and it begins to consume any of us. It consumes us, and before you know it, we begin to do things unjustly. We begin to have things that we really don't need, all while people around us are suffering. This is Isaiah 61. And so when I read this text, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, there's something that's important. There's a reason why the Spirit of the Lord is upon Isaiah this is the same passage that Jesus, when he begins his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, it just so happens, man, that he goes to the temple for worship. He reads the prophet, the scroll that day, and they got him queued up, baby. It's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah 61, this same text. And he reads it. Because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has anointed me for what? to bring good news to the poor or the afflicted. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon us for a purpose, not just for the sake of having a private, personal holiness. I love that. Now, I love some, some, script, some scripture time, time in the Word, meditation. But this thing that is inside of me and you and us is meant to be set free in the sake, for the sake of our neighborhood our world and community, it's never meant to be consumed just for us. And I understand that in our consumerism culture, 
uh, we have a hard time with this because we like to consume things. We like to consume all that we can. But the reality is, is that there is evidence here in Isaiah that if the spirit of the Lord is upon us, the people of God, the people of Israel in this time, if the spirit of the Lord is truly upon God's people, then there are some things that ought to happen. Uh-oh, what is that? He says to bring good news to the poor. Oh, man, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The poor in Jesus' day, when he read this, there were five characteristics of people who were considered to be poor in, days, in the day of Jesus. First century Mediterranean, one of the things that describes somebody as poor is if you were of the wrong ethnicity. If you were a non-Jew in a Jewish culture, you were considered to be poor and you were treated as if you were someone who was poor. Samaritans were mistreated by their own people. The second piece is if you are of the wrong gender, if you were of the wrong gender, if you were a woman in the first century Mediterranean culture, you were considered to be poor. You were pushed to the fringes and margins of society. This is why Jesus is very intentional about going to a woman in broad daylight. And then he asked her for a drink of water. Third piece, if you had the wrong occupation, you were considered to be poor, tax collectors, prostitutes. If you had the wrong occupation, you were considered to be poor. The fourth thing, finances. If you were broke, busted, and disgusted. <laughs> in any century, in any lifetime of humanity, if you couldn't rub two wooden nickels together, baby, you were considered to be poor. And the fifth piece, there's probably other ones that we could talk about, but the fifth piece the fifth piece is this. If you had physical limitations, if you were blind, if you were a cripple, if you were a leper, you were also pushed to the margins of society. And yet in this prophecy, in this prophet, the first of the major prophets, Isaiah says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And because the spirit has, of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. We just heard a testimony from a young lady who talked about being in a poor circumstance. She talked about what her circumstance did to her emotionally, mentally, and how she came out of that and how the church responded. See, this is not just this. It's not just that we bring good news to the poor and we help set people free, but you keep on going down. And what happens is, is that these same people who have been set free become people now who lead. This is the good news. This is like the message of holiness. God doesn't just save you so that you might be saved, man. That's a dead gospel. God saves you so that you might be transformed and become something new. So if I were to give that first point a point, I will give it this. Get, be gracious with me because my papers were blown all over the pace, place. But if I were to give that a point is this, is that 
proclamation and faithful demonstration that exalts the Lord is evidence of salvation. You with that? That's a whole lot, I know. Proclamation and faithful demonstration that exalts the Lord is evidence of God's salvation. The second piece is this. So we understand that proclamation and faithful demonstration is part of this. However, uh, what's also important to understand in verses uh, 4 through 8 is that not just these things happen, but then there should be a restoration of the devastation. This is the second point. Restoration of the devastation. In Jerusalem, the Jewish people had been taken over by ideologies. Some of them laid in bed with foreign gods and foreign belief systems, and they participated in things that led to their own demise. And so let's be very clear here. God was the one who caused this to happen, but it was for their good. It was for their good so that things might change, so things might turn around, so that they might confess and repent and be saved, right? Because this is a covenant God. And so the restoration of the devastation is really about justice. Now, when I talk about justice, I realized in the American culture, when I talk about justice, some people like do this kind of stuff. Like, what are we talking about? And I think primarily because when we think about justice, we look at the criminal justice system, which is about punitive action rather than rightly restored relationships. When I'm talking about justice, I'm not talking about vengeance and punishment. That ain't my job. That comes later with Jesus. And I'm so glad it ain't me because sometimes I want to do it. I know y'all ain't never like that, right? None of you have ever been this way to where you want to exercise some vengeance, right? None of you saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost and all that. You've never felt that way. That's just me. And I'm so glad it's not me because I would have been cursed and condemned the wrong people. But the reality is this. Restoration of the devastation means that relationships are rightly restored. See, it's a false witness for the people of God to participate in things that cause ruins in any society or any place in the world throughout history now and in the future. And what it does is it bears a false witness to a good God who created enough for all of us in the beginning. This God that we serve owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And it's important for us to understand that the way that things are distributed in society don't always reflect to God. This is why it's important for us as followers of the lamb that was slain. It's important for us to understand that our mascot, that our mascot is a slaughtered lamb. Our mascot ain't a donkey, and it sure ain't an elephant. Our mascot, if we're going to follow the suffering servant, our mascot is a lamb that was slain, man. This ain't about powering over other people. This ain't about colonization and the empire. This is not about the rider on the white horse who's bent on conquering, man. This is about the lamb who was slain, who gave his life so that we might live and that we might follow in his footsteps. So what's that mean? That our lives to be lives that model sacrifice and vulnerability and suffering for the sake of God and others. So as we think about what God is doing here in this community, we have to think about how God is calling us to restore the things that have been devastated in this community, much like the ancient Israelites. 
much like the ancient Israelites were called to do this. Marion, America, every country in the world. This is not just an American thing, man. This is a human thing, and it's global. But since we're right here in central Marion, because I've been listening to the elders, and I've been listening to the people for a very long time, I think it's important for the people of God to hear this. Now, I want to I say something here. What I'm about to say is not directed at you or to you, but it's for you. A couple of months ago, we did a prayer walk in this neighborhood and some people who weren't part of our church joined us. And one of the things that we do is we walk around the neighborhood. We walk around the neighborhood. We look at different places. We pray. We pray for different houses, different churches. We pray for this community. And we also give a history lesson on this hist- on, on, on Marion here. See, at one point in time, if you look at the houses on Washington Street, this was a flourishing neighborhood. But some things happened. Something happened. And so with that, one of the things that happened is as the demographics changed, the neighborhood changed, the church changed. As the demographics changed, not only did the neighborhood change, but churches moved out of the neighborhood, right? So uh, let me give you a little history lesson. Uh, Pause, time out. This might not be a good thing to fight against the, the, the train. Consider consider this grace. I think that's grace. We'll take it. So back to what I was saying. Uh, At one point in time, this neighborhood was a flourishing neighborhood. You can look up Washington Street and you can see these big houses up the street years ago. the, The hospital was up the street, right? There was something in this neighborhood that was flourishing. At least it looked like it did. And so uh, during the 1940s through the 1970s, this is known as the Great Migration, the Second Great Migration. It's important for us to understand this. What happens is millions upon millions of African-Americans from the South move north and come north. This neighborhood here is predominantly African-American neighborhood going that way. 40 years ago, they were the same. But 50, 60 years ago, these were predominantly white neighborhoods. So during the second great migration, blacks from the south come north. Now, let me say something. The most, all of the churches in this neighborhood, you go to Christ Temple, you go look at that big church that is dilapidated. That church is still in existence today, but they're out 15. They moved out 15, right? You go down to, the, to Ninth and Boots, you'll see another building that was given to Cornerstone. Cornerstone had it for many years. That church also moved out 15. Uh, there are many churches in, that were in this neighborhood. They were predominantly white churches. They were all white churches. But what happened was, is the demographics changed and the gospel wasn't big enough to include blacks and whites together. 
That's what happened. The, the demographics changed. Black folks from the South who were leaving the oppression of the South found out that it also existed in the North. And so when they moved, white Christians, the building, the church, the big dilapidated church owned the apartments next to it where their parishioners lived there. Two blocks up the street, they built a park that's no longer here today. When they left, man, things changed. The gospel was not big enough for them to hold black and white folks together in a very trying time. Meanwhile, in the South, during civil rights, you had black and white Christians fighting together for the sake of justice. An interesting thing here is that this church that was in this neighborhood, you go back almost 200 years ago to when my family came here. They were freeing free enslaved blacks from North Carolina. They came here. And these were some of the same people that helped my folks get here from the South in the 1800s. But somehow, some way, something changed, man. The demographics changed, church moved out, and all of a sudden, this neighborhood changes. And then you have some of those people, they go out to where they go out, and just check out the history of Marion. If not, get with Dr. Rusty Hawkins. He can school you on some of this, baby. There's, what happens is, is they begin to build these communities out North Marion. You go out 15, you go out 9, there's these communities that are built, but then they have these neighborhood covenants. And these neighborhood covenants say that black folks cannot live out here, and, and if you're here uh, past 7 o'clock, you better be working for somebody. The same thing for Hispanics. So then what happens is, is when we think about how neighborhoods got this way, it, we didn't just wake up one day and find ourselves here. And many of these folks were good, Jesus-loving, church-going people. But something wasn't right. Relationships were not rightly restored. And the gospel was not big enough to hold people together from different sides of life. The church was in contempt. The church has been in contempt. So when I think of this place here with what we're doing, I see us today as a way of making this stuff right. Now, we're not perfect, and we're not here to champion our own selves and say, man, we got it all right. That's not what we're doing. But if we lead, read the text faithfully, there ought to be some things happening when the people of God who are possessed and filled with the Spirit of God are doing ministry that is alignment with God. Amen? The crazy thing is, is that restoration of the devastation is, is interesting because this didn't just happen with one or two generations. This happened in several, for several generations. Several generations willingly and sometimes ignorantly participated in the demise of Central City Marion. I think it's funny, I, I found a quote by John Wesley. John Wesley says that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. We didn't get here over this period of time just like this. There were a lot of generations of people who tolerated injustice, and now the grandkids and the great-grandkids are living. They don't want anything to do with the church. They're mad at God and God's people because we have been giving an unfaithful witness of the sovereign Lord. But there is always good news. The restoration of the devastation should be something 
that takes place as a result of God's salvation in a neighborhood. As we get to verse 9, verse 9 says this. The wind has jacked me up. We're going to press on. Trust the Lord. But verse 9 says this. Maybe. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. So we restore the devastations that have taken place in our communities based on what we can do. We are all limited on what we can do, but God is calling us to restore our communities and the things that have happened before us. I think this is important because if we do this, now we can rightly lead our future generations into what God has always called us to in the first place. God is a covenant God. God promises to always do what God will do and invites us to participate in his salvific work. This is the kingdom of God through the Messiah, the kingdom that is to come and yet is already here if we're looking for it. But how are we discipling our young people today? Young people in our churches, in our communities, they are the future of this place. And if all we do is tolerate what's been going on, guess what? They'll perpetuate it themselves because the discipleship of the previous generations failed. Yeah, we went to church on Sunday. Yeah, we, praised our, we raised our hands. Yes, we fasted. Isaiah 58 talks about all these external religious practices. And yet at the same time, there's so many other things that happened because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. Salvation, God's salvation also moves to rightly lead future generations. How will we do that? Yes, we're doing this. We have a park. Our youth are here every day playing on the park. Yes, there's other things that we want to do, but how do we think about how we move them beyond just showing up at the park to becoming active participants in God's redeeming work in our community? Evidence of God's salvation will rightly impact future generations. And then the last part of this is very simple. The last part of this, I feel like we're doing, right? Here it says that I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. God's salvation will also lead to celebration. I hope this isn't the last time that we do this. I hope that next year we can do it maybe again this year. I hope that we can continue to celebrate the work of God. 
brothers and sisters, I really believe that if we would take care and care more for our neighborhoods and our communities, I really believe that the people around us and the world around us that has been upset and angry with the church for many years has walked away. I believe that they will return because deep down inside, they don't have a problem with God. They got a problem with God's people. But if we would be faithful, if you and I would be faithful to say, you know what? We're going to do things differently. We're going to assess how we're being unfaithful and confess it and turn away from it so that we might be saved, but not just us, so that the future might follow. And so today, I would like for you to pause for a moment and think about what was just said. We're going to have a time for a confession here in a moment. But what is it today? What is it today that you and I need to confess and repent of? How have we maybe participated in some of the ruins in our own communities, neighborhoods? Not because we necessarily wanted it to happen, but sometimes we're just ignorant. Sometimes we just don't know what we don't know, and this is why we need each other. There's things that you see that I don't see, and there's things that I see that you don't see, and there's other things that other people see that we don't see and we need each other. But we need each other to be right. What is it today that you need to confess of from? Merciful God, you pardon all who truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart, nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not done justice love kindness, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness. In your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. As sure as I know that Christ has already came, Christ has already died, 
Christ has already been raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, sits in a place of perfect authority, perfect sonship. As much as I know that to be true, I also know the words of 1 John 1, 9 to be true. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what I do know, church. And because of that, I can praise the Lord. And on this Juneteenth, I want to give you an illustration of what happens. Not only are we standing here today on something that happens when the people of God come together, but as we think about Juneteenth this week, I want to read something brief to you about how this has happened in the past. Jubilation Day in Juneteenth, despite the January 1863 Emancipation Proclamation to end slavery in the United States, hundreds of thousands of Negroes remained in bondage as Civil War skirmishes continued to rage. Many slaveholders unwilling to free black people stole away to Texas territory where they hid their, their slaves. Their pain worked for two and a half more years until the Union Army, including black and white soldiers, rolled into Galveston and proclaimed the good news of the slaves' emancipation. On June 19, 1865, the pronouncement of the legal end to hundreds of years and generations of cruel bondage spread, and the freedom celebrations flowed among the formerly enslaved with prayers, shouts, and singing God's praises. To God be the glory. 